actually morning, I'm looking out of my window to the old shed roof across the way. It's this great shed roof. It's amazing the thing is still standing. You know, well, the underbelly of it is all rotted and twisted green boards. The shingles are curling up, covered with moss. It's a piece of rusted steel covering the crown of it. And the squirrels run around there all day. Gutters are full and look like they're going to fall off. But it makes for great scenery. The backdrop is, ah, geez, almost a dozen different varieties of trees and a historic home from where I'm looking. Then just over to the left is the water and a gravelly beach. So, Dig, today I'm going to start off by reading some Henry David Thoreau from Walden and then from Civil Disobedience, which is just really a book that when I read it as a youth, it really broke open a lot of things, uh, well, about the potential literature for changing minds. So it's remained a favorite over all these years. This is from the conclusion. I left the woods for as good a reason as I went there. Perhaps it seemed to me that I had several more lives to live and could not spare any more time for that one. It is remarkable how easily and insensibly we fall into a particular route and make a beaten track for ourselves. I had not lived there a week before my feet wore a path from my door to the pond side, and though it is five or six years since I trod it, it is still quite distinct. It is true, I fear that others may have fallen into it and so helped to keep it open. The surface of the earth is soft and impressible by the feet of men, and so with the paths which the mind travels. How worn and dusty, then, must be the highways of the world, how deep the ruts of tradition and conformity. Skipping ahead just a bit, here's one of my favorite paragraphs ever written down. I learned this, at least, by my experiment, that if one advances confidently in the direction of his dreams and endeavors to live the life which he has imagined, he will meet with a success unexpected in common hours. He will put some things behind, will pass an invisible boundary, new, universal, and more liberal laws will begin to establish themselves around and within him, or the old laws will be expanded and interpreted in his favor in a more liberal sense he will live with the license of a higher order of beings. In proportion as he simplifies his life, the laws of the universe will appear less complex and solitude will not be solitude, nor poverty poverty, nor weakness weakness. If you have built castles in the air, your work need not be lost. That is where they should be. Now put the foundations under them. really good stuff, I think. Hey, I'm going to keep rolling with the throw. I'm skipping over to civil disobedience. And this is a little part about, well, it's well-documented trip to jail for not paying his taxes. And civil disobedience recounts his, the philosophical underpinnings of why he did this and historical precedent and such not. But I thought this part was a little interesting here, just the anecdote of him actually being in jail. It wasn't really a tough racket. I mean, he spent one night in jail, and not like uh, there were the giant concrete barbed wire prison camps. They're common today. Anyway, that's beside the point. Here's a little bit from Civil Disobedience. The night in prison was novel and interesting enough. The prisoners in their shirt sleeve were enjoying a chat and the evening air in the doorway when I entered. But the jailer said, Come, boys, it's time to lock up. And so they dispersed, and I heard the sound of their steps returning to their hollow apartments. 
My roommate was introduced to me by the jailer as a first-rate fellow and a clever man. When the door was locked, he showed me where to hang my hat and how he managed matters there. The rooms were whitewashed once a month, and this one, at least, was the whitest, most simply furnished, and probably the neatest apartment in the town. He naturally wanted to know where I came from and what brought me there, and when I told him, I asked him, in my turn, how he came there, presuming him to be an honest man, of course, and as the world goes, I believe he was. Why, said he, they accused me of burning a barn, but I never did it. As near as I could discover, he had probably gone to bed in the barn when drunk and smoked his pipe there, and so a barn was burned. He had the reputation of being a clever man, had been there some three months waiting for his trial to come on, and would have to wait as much longer. But he was quite domesticated and contented, since he got his board for nothing and thought he was well treated. He occupied one window and I the other, and I saw that if one stayed there long, his principal business would be to look out the window. I had soon read all the tracks that were left there, and examined where former prisoners had broken out, and where a grade had been sawed off, and heard the history of the various occupants of that room. For I found that even here there was a history and a gossip which never circulated beyond the walls of the jail. Probably this is the only house in the town where verses are composed, which are afterward printed in a circular form, but not published. I was shown quite a long list of verses which were composed by some young men who had been detected in an attempt to escape, who avenged themselves by singing them. Well, here's a little bit about Henry David Thoreau's Night in Jail. And uh, that's why I mentioned earlier that I think the jails may be a little different. The atmosphere is a little different then than it is now. I enjoyed the bits and pieces of the rebellious youths composing poems and singing them as an act of defiance. I also liked that within his first couple hours there, he had done everything he could to do and had resigned himself for looking out the window. Again, there's a whole essay there about rehabilitative justice, but I think that will wait for another time. I'll dedicate that little piece there to Mark Emery and his colleagues who are facing all sorts of hassle from the man in Vancouver. So hopefully the spirit of Henry David Thoreau will be shining light for them in the darkness. So next up, I'm going to read something from Gabriel Garcia Marquez's 100 Years of Solitude. And in reading this out loud, I find it's a little different than reading it in my head because I actually have to pronounce the things. So we'll see how it goes. Colonel Ariano Buenda organized 32 armed uprisings, and he lost them all. He had 17 male children by 17 different women, and they were exterminated, one after the other, on a single night before the oldest one had reached the age of 35. He survived 14 attempts on his life, 73 ambushes, and a firing squad. He lived through a dose of strychnine in his coffee that was enough to kill a horse. He refused the Order of Merit, which the President of the Republic awarded him. He rose to be commander-in-chief of the revolutionary forces with jurisdiction and command from one border to the other, and the man most feared by the government, but he never let himself be photographed. He declined the lifetime pension offered him after the war, and until old age, he made his living from the little gold fishes that he manufactured in the workshop in Macondo. Although he always fought at the head of his men, the only wound that he received was the one he gave himself after signing the Treaty of Nirlandia, which put an end to almost 20 years of civil war. He shot himself in the chest with a pistol, and the bullet came out through the back without damaging any vital organ. The only thing left of all that was a street that bore his name in Makanda, 
And yet, as he declared a few years before he died of old age, he had not expected any of that on the dawn. He left with his 21 men to join the forces of General Victoria Medina. Okay, from another part of that same book, here's a, another little snippet I enjoyed. Amaranta Ursula returned from, with the first angels of December, driven on a sailor's breeze, leading her husband by a silk rope tied around his neck. She appeared without warning, wearing an ivory-colored dress, a string of pearls that reached almost to her knees, emerald and topaz rings, and with her straight hair in a smooth bun, held behind her ears by swallowtail brooches. The man whom she had married six months before was a thin, older Fleming, with the look of a sailor about him. She had only to push open the door to the parlor to realize that her absence had been longer and more destructive than she had imagined. Good Lord, she shouted, more gay than alarmed. It's obvious that there's no woman in this house. The baggage would not fit on the porch. Besides Fernanda's old trunk, which they had sent her off to school with, she had two upright trunks, four large suitcases, a bag for her parasols, eight hat boxes, a gigantic cage with half a hundred canaries, and her husband's velocipede, broken down in a special case which allowed him to carry it like a cello. She did not even take a day of rest after the long trip. She put on some worn denim overalls that her husband had brought along with other automotive items and set about on a new restoration of the house. She scattered the red ants who had already taken possession of the porch, brought the rose bushes back to life, uprooted the weeds and planted ferns, oregano and begonias, again in the pots along the railings. She took charge of a crew of carpenters, locksmiths and masons who filled in the cracks of the floor, put doors and windows back on their hinges, repaired the furniture and whitewashed the walls inside and out, so that three months after arrival, one breathed once more the atmosphere of youth and festivity that had existed during the days of the pianola. No one in the house had ever been in a better mood at all hours and under any circumstances, nor had anyone ever been readier to sing and dance and toss all items and customs from the past into the trash. With a sweep of her broom, she did away with the funeral memory mementos and piles of useless trash and articles of superstition that had been piling up in the corners. And the only thing she spared, out of gratitude to Ursula, was the daguerreotype of the remedios in the parlor. My, such luxury, she would shout, dying with laughter. A 14-year-old grandmother. That was Gabriel Garcia Marquez from 100 Years of Solitude, a couple passages preceded by Henry David Thoreau from Walden's Civil Disobedience. Now, I put up some brief show notes or whatever on my website, uncleweed.net, which now also features advertising. Yuck. But uh, click and I'll promise to spend all the money on beverages. And to wrap things up today, I'm going to read a little something of my own. And this is a Portuguese snapshot that I wrote earlier this year. Uh, while in Portugal. Red roofs falling cliff high into foaming waves. Old man watches sheep who don't seem to mind. Wondering where Atlantico turns into the inland sea. The signs say no tractors or this way to ferries. Brick stoves and clay ovens widely shown. The man with the donkey wanders by. She's happiest when moving fast and straight or eating small tasty things with sauces. You are saying these strange things to me but I don't know why. Concrete poles, houses thick and white, red clay courtyards wrapped in blue tiles, guarded by saints of forgotten names, protecting palms. 
melted bold yellow walls, wood cut even stacked in jumbles, posters of singers and toros, workmen piling in tipico, early lunch, dried cod, chicken blood, sardines, waving, she doesn't watch, crossing shady lane with tiny cars, the dog with the shortest legs. Adieu, Carol, in color, surveys a dark vino blanco. She opens it, cold, and hands it, sits down. Obrigado. The swarthy one points us to St. Virgilio of Figueroa de Faz, who we call Jack for Joaquin, patron of wanderers, spicy clams, and cold sangria. Eyes like grutas of secrets, grottos holding reflections of monoliths, and winters lasting into spring. Hey, thanks for listening. I'll brew up something cool for next time, and I'll maybe even come up with some new music tracks, too, although I like this stuff a lot. All right, see you later.